I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 109 of the Talking Golf History Podcast, and the second episode of the rise and demise of the Ben Hogan Golf Company. We are once again joined by John Barba of My Golf Spy to continue our tale of this once great company that has disappeared from the golf world once again. We start today's episode with the Cosmo World Acquisition, a Japanese firm with the high hopes of acquiring the Ben Hogan Golf Company and Pebble Beach. If you don't know this story, it's about to get crazy, so sit back and enjoy. Let's dive into the rise and demise of the Ben Hogan Golf Company, Part 2. In 1987, they turn around a $2.5 million loss into a $2.5 million profit. 1987 turns into a banner year. But there's a little bit of chaos coming up in the story. Let's start with the the tailwinds. What's going well for the Ben Hogan Golf Company? And then maybe dive into the headwinds. What is What are the problems they're facing? A little bit of chaos. Because you can never get a lot of good times at the Ben Hogan Golf Company. That's what we've learned. Like... We've done it. We're on top. And then, ah, yeah. crap. What the hell happened? Yeah. Wait, what, what could possibly... It's crazy. Like, I mean, it's just insane. Great. What could possibly go yeah. wrong? <laughs> Most people um, at least have like, you know, five years of a good ride, but it's, 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 there's always waves in this yeah. company. Yeah. There's something lurking behind every corner. Um, remember we said earlier about the asterisk around that meeting that Austria had with Hogan in early 1987. Well, before that meeting, uh, right after the PGA show, Austria and all of the presidents of the former AMF companies that were owned by Minstar went on this corporate retreat that was really ultra fancy and everything. Uh, but at that meeting, Minstar tells all these presidents that all of them, except for Hatteras Yachts, were going to be put up for sale. Wow. So, like, so, you just turned it around. Yeah. You know, like, it's sunny skies and sunshine. And then, hey, guess what? We're getting rid of everything. Yeah. Well, you're in the process of just starting to turn it around. 87 was yeah. the turnaround. But you're just getting out of the blocks. You're Jerry Ostry. You've been on the job for about a month. And all of a sudden, let's pull the rug out from under you. Unreal. You're going to be sold. And and doggone it, we're gonna, when we sell you, we want you to be profitable. We, you've got to turn this thing around so the buyer thinks he's buying a company that's profitable and not one that's losing money. It's because we want top dollar for this and we want we want we can't do that if we're if we're if we're losing money. So that's what's hanging over Jerry's head at that time. And through all of 1987, this is what he's doing. At the same time, he's trying to force he's trying to, to push through the Hogan edge uh, and develop what really was the first mass produced forged perimeter weighted cavity back iron. So this is this is on his plate all through 1987. Revive the company, get Ben Hogan back involved in the marketing. Remember the hats, <laughs> and 
again, get R&D on board with developing and get manufacturing on board to figure out how to manufacture a forged perimeter weighted cavity back iron, which had never been done in a widespread manner. Uh, Wilson had one of, had come up with one a few years earlier, but it was only sold at retail and really was kind of a footnote to history. The Edge was the one that really made history. But they had to figure all this stuff out. It wasn't easy and it hadn't been done before. And then in 87, you want headwinds, 87, Ping is still, you know, the Ping is still going strong. The 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 groove kerfuffle with uh, the PGA and the USGA is coming along, and people saying, "Oh my God, these things have illegal grooves. I better go out and get a set." That <laughs> That's just how benefit, golfers right? think, right? It's like they're right? getting ripped for illegal grooves that are helping you too much. I need to yeah. buy these before they take I, them I, off the market. Yeah, I, I just like if this those. if the ball rollback happens. Everyone's going to have like crazy stacks of boxes of like Pro V1 sitting yeah. in there. <laughs> you know, it, it is funny that people do think like that because uh, oh, yeah. in 1931, we rolled the ball back and there's this great article talking. It was a, a newspaper reporter talking about how golfers were basically making a run on their local pro shops to stack up on all of the 1.62 golf balls they could. And just, you know, because they didn't want to make this change to the, you know, what they were nicknaming the balloon ball. We're just, we're built that way. And and it yeah. it's yep. funny because they're doing something in theory that is against the USGA's rulings, but it actually helps sell sales. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I'll to bring in my other career into this in the 80s when we, it might have been early 90s, when it was mandated that we go from, that we start using 1.6 gallon flush water closets, toilets. There was a date where you couldn't, manufacturers couldn't make them, make anything larger than that. The sales of two and a half gallon flush toilets went through the roof for the, yeah. for the months preceding. It's make a run, make a, <laughs> make a run on the inventory. Have, we got to have them. We got to have them. The other thing that happened in 87 was the second best selling iron of all time was released. And that was the Tommy Armour 845S, which was basically a better looking Ping I-2. So now there's another element that Hogan's got to deal with, which is Tommy Armour. So that's there's there's good things happening, but okay, we're going to be up for sale. We got to keep this under our hat as long as we can, because we've got to stay focused on making the paint, making the edge. But in in August, we have another competitor that we have to deal with. So it's so like, does Ben Hogan know about does, is at, at this time? Does Ben Hogan is he aware that they're, you know going to sell the company or when how is he made aware of it do we know don't really not anything that i could determine but at some point during that year the rumor started uh in 87 the rumor started that that hogan was up for sale so so ben hogan had to have learned about it but what was worse was worse in terms of of the 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 political and social climate at the time it became known that a, a japanese company was one of the leading bidders or one of the leading candidates to purchase Hogan. Now, dial back to 1987. What was going on in 1987? It was what they would, what uh, pundits called the economic Pearl Harbor. Japanese companies were buying up interest in the U.S. hand over fist. And you couldn't, you couldn't pick up the newspaper back then without reading a headline that a Japanese company had bought 20th Century Fox or a Japanese company had bought uh, the, the Rockefeller Center in New York City or a, a movie lot or a, a, a high tech company or real estate. It was it was at that point, people think, oh, yeah, American car companies can't make a car worth anything. Everybody was buying Japanese cars. You remember uh, Back to the Future, the movie Back to the Future? 
uh, when Marty goes back in time and uh, the docs, the 1955 doc is looking at this thing. So no wonder this thing crapped out. It says made in Japan. Yeah, that's and, right. And, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Say, doc, all the best stuff's made in Japan. Now. Yeah. And that's that was, 1980s. Yeah. yeah. Right around this so, time. All right. So that, so, so, so that's what's going on. And against that backdrop, the Hogan company's trying to make, the edge. They knew they had a winner. They knew the design was sound, but they were having manufacturing problems. R&D and manufacturing were having, it was hard to do. It had never been done before. Their biggest problem was tooling for the, for the, the cavity back. Yeah. When uh, you've only done forge forever, yeah. you know, it's, it's a whole new animal. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, it. So that was, that was a, that was a real struggle to get that right. And they eventually did. They got it right. And they were planning. Uh, so everything's great. Right. <laughs> it can only great. go well. What happens? We got this thing licked. We're looking to launch the edge in, in second quarter 1988. Everything's looking fantastic. But then we have the strike. <sighs> yeah. So the um, factory goes on strike. The factory right. that figured out how to cast this iron right. said, no, we're not going to make it. Well, a little more to it than that. Yeah. Go to into it. Hogan had been unionized since the early 60s and for the most part they, they there was there was uh, very little labor strife they had you know some issues here and there but nothing they never they they couldn't overcome in early 1988 their 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 the the, the contract or the agreement with the steelworkers union was coming to an end and they had to start negotiating to come up with a new one remember the company's out up for sale at this point too if we think about how Hogan was doing they had that 2.5 million dollar loss in 85 86, Austria turned that into a $2.5 million profit. 87, they had a $4 million profit. Things are going so well. Things are going well. The steel yep. workers are saying, okay, we did our part. You know, now let's, yeah. you know. I, We'd you like know, to let, be compensated for we, helping you, you know, achieve success. Exactly, which is, which is ultimately reasonable. So they went to the bargaining table asking for a 10% pay increase. The MinStar team that was handling the negotiations basically got up and left. They made no counter offer. They said, we're, we're, we'll get back to you. They come back a few weeks later with their, with their offer. It wasn't a counter proposal. <laughs> yeah. It was, it wasn't even a counter proposal. Yeah. This is what we're, this here's is what the demand, the demand, here's the demand. You're not getting a 10% pay increase. You're not getting a 5% pay increase. You will take a 40% hourly wage decrease wow and it's not negotiable 40 percent. yeah take it or leave it wow so here they're thinking you know we're going to negotiate for a pay increase it's for all intents and purposes seems to be a reasonable request obviously you have potentially a japanese company looking to acquire the company so that's definitely in the the minds of the ownership and they go to war right they take a warlord mentality and say 40 percent so 40%. It that clearly does not go well. Right. Obviously, they had reached a deal with the Japanese buyer at this time. And and they said the deal was, hey, we'll buy this contingent upon you settling this labor issue on our terms, basically your terms, um, you know, where they're trying to break the union. That was the, that was the theory. Uh, Minstar was prepared for this. OK, they, they they had their ducks in a row, so to speak. So they had replacement workers all ready to go. And they had already written up. They had plans written up to relocate the company to either Southern California or Mexico if they had to. 
within you know within hours of the strike becoming official they actually hired a private security firm an armed private security firm to to uh, patrol the area with the unlikely name of knuckles <laughs> oh wow yeah i mean again if this knuckles. is a movie yeah this is a movie your no. private you, security you, firm named knuckles <laughs> yeah insane right um austria uh, was getting uh Death threats and harassing phone calls. The VP of manufacturing, a guy named Doug, uh, uh, Doug Hendershot, was getting death threats to the point where Hendershot actually had to be driven to work each day in a bulletproof van with solid rubber tires. It's crazy. Yeah. And, and in his autobiography, Austria tells a great story about how he was at one of his son's baseball games. And he's watching the game. And there's this guy that no matter where Jerry goes, this guy's following him. And with all the death threats and everything, this guy's a stalker. So he's going, you know, he goes over here to get a hot dog. The guy's following him. He goes over here to the men's room. The guy's following him. Everywhere he goes, this guy's following him. So he's starting to panic till he turned to, turns out that this guy was a bodyguard that Knuckles assigned. He didn't him. even know. He didn't know. He didn't even know. He didn't even know. So um, during the strike, as this strike's going on, the, the deal to sell Hogan was finalized. And the, the buyer was a Japanese company called Cosmo World. And they were sold for $53 million. This is all during the strike. But again, part of the deal was this has to be settled and it has to be settled on MinStar's terms. When you have that incentive as as management, you have the incentive to hang on. You can you can wait it out. The union finally had to break. The union finally you know capitulated because they had to figure, you know, 40 percent of something is better than 100 percent. Oh, gosh, it's terrible. Yeah, so 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 they finalized the sale to Cosmo World, and we meet Cosmo World's owner, a gentleman named uh, Minoru Isatani. So they accepted the forty percent pay cut. Yeah, they oh, brutal. They, they, at that point, they just they, they caved. You know, brutal. you're going on you're going on a month of no pay. It doesn't look like it's going to change. They're not coming to you. It, yeah, it's, it's harsh. It's, a, it's, a, it's an old story. So. That escalated really quickly, right? They went from the best of times to the worst of times to everything's looking up. Now we're being acquired. You know, how did the acquisition go down? Well, this was Texas, okay? Given the times, given what was going on in the rest of the country with economic Pearl Harbor, it, it, it can only imagine it didn't go well. Um, it, 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 uh, Jerry tells about how um, Isatani's first visit to the factory uh, the Cosmo World people instructed all of management and all the salaried workers uh, when they were to meet Isatani, they were to line up in a row to meet Isatani, and they were not to say a word, but as he walked by, they were to bow. These are Texans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> These are Texans. Um, I can't imagine that went. That, that probably went. did not go over well. Right. And that's that, that's the same time, that same visit was when. Isutani uh, formally met and had lunch with Ben Hogan at Shady Oaks, and they're ha- and you know they're having lunch, and Hogan asks you know he asks an interpreter, does Mister Isutani understand English? And when told that that Isutani did in fact understand English, Hogan looked at him and and the, the quote's very famous. He says, you know, you just bought the family jewels. Don't fuck it up. Blunt as usual. Very- very blunt, very straightforward, Mr. Hogan. Now, whether he, you can make a case that he did, in fact, <laughs> screw it up, but that's that's that that's the, what will unfold in the future. 
the strike has been settled, but the workers aren't happy, right? This is, there's still a lot of bitterness, a lot of resentment over the strike, over the 40% pay cut. And then, hey, we're Texas, but we're now owned by a Japanese company. Um, there was a lot of stuff going on that, that was shady. There was products, uh, machinery sabotage, deliberate slowdowns. All of this had the net effect of pushing back the launch of the edge. So, and that was all internal, you think, I mean, yep. like the machine sabotage, it was just people, you think, just fed up and couldn't take it anymore. And, you know, we'll show you. Yeah, that, that's kind of the working theory. Gosh, yeah, that's crazy. That, 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 yeah, unhappy workers, you know, unhappy, resentful workers. Yeah. And, 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 and that's against the backdrop of just a few months prior, okay, before MinStar put them up for sale, before that was, you know, MinStar had them up for sale, but before anything with, about the Japanese interest came out, um, Austrian management through a big family festival for the employees and, and Ben and Valerie were there and it, all the all the kids were there all the families were there they had all kinds of activities and you know food and everything and it was such a Jerry describes it as it was such a, a, a wonderful day everything felt great the workers were happy uh, they loved working for Hogan you know Hogan was there and it really revitalized him uh, to, 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 to be with his to be with his workers and, and at the factory and see his life's work really progressing. And then everything else happens to follow. Oh, just yeah. gutted, right? Yep. Just gutted. But as as befitting our story, it's about to go back up again. Yeah. So let's hit the next wave. Despite the bumpy start to Japanese ownership, the ship steadies in 1988. Tell us a little bit about 1988. Well, I wouldn't say it didn't just steady. It soared. If a ship can soar. I don't know if a ship can soar. Maybe a spaceship maybe can soar. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> it's uh, on the upside of that wave. Right, right. Um, the, 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 the Edge finally saw the light of day. And uh, it was introduced in August of 1988. And Hogan had robot testing that showed, and they, they promoted this, that it was, it was proved to be more accurate than other cavity backs. And just as long, if not longer, but... Most importantly, it gave you the performance that you were getting from the ping, but with that forged, classic Hogan forged feel that that was missing from the ping. And boy, oh boy, did golfers eat it up. Now, Hogan projected that that first year they'd sell about 60,000 sets, which was which was a big deal. That was a that was a lot of a lot of sets. Before August was over, they introduced it, I think it was August 4th, but before the month was over and before they had any print or TV ads out for the product, they had already taken orders for about 50,000 sets in less than a month wow. before the promotion started. By the time the ads started in October, orders had reached 100,000. And by the end of the year, they had taken orders for 120,000 sets. Would that have been their most successful iron at that point? By far. By far, you could make a case it's probably behind the the the, the Ping I two and the eight forty five S. You can make a case it's probably the third best selling iron of all time. And and you mentioned that there the robotic testing was proving that it was more accurate than the other cavity back irons on the market. Right. So you're really getting the best of both worlds. You're getting the Ben yeah. Hogan, the accuracy, the feel. How did they handle that surge of need? Boy, they had they were working twenty four seven. Steve Dreyer says they were just ramming and jamming and working twenty four seven, seven days a week. Um, you know, and he said they didn't get caught up for a year. That's how that's wow. how tough it was. They and they and and that was with the backdrop of of kind of a resentful workforce too. 
they could never fully keep up with the orders. I mean, the orders always outpace their ability to to make and and sell their irons. So they're just working at their peak. They were they were building five thousand sets of irons a day. Unreal. Just working like crazy. So they had 88 was their best year ever for both sales and profits. Well, yeah, I'm sure it's a lot more profitable when your workers are making 40% less too. Well, they're yeah, let's, <laughs> right. Let's, let's not forget Jeez, that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they were, uh, you know, again, they were the number one forged iron company on the planet and number three overall behind Tommy Armour and Ping. And they were a close third. It was, you know, close to second and third. There wasn't a, a big difference between where Tommy Armour was and where, where So Hogan. a massive surge in oh, yeah. 1988. Things are going fantastic, but Christmas is coming. Christmas is coming. We know you don't get presents at Christmas at the Ben Hogan Company. You always get something else. What happened Christmas 1988? Uh, well, um, Austria's riding this, this wave of success and the new management, the U.S. management of of Cosmo World, really hasn't talked to him much about what's going, what's planned for 1989. So, so Austria finally gets a dinner meeting with Dick Babbitt, who's in charge of Cosmo World in the U.S. And uh, Babbitt tells him that there's going to be a new direction for the Hogan Company for 1989. And Austria says, "Terrific, great, I'm on board. What do you need me to do to help with this new direction?" And to which Babbitt replies, you don't understand. This new direction doesn't include you. Wow. And he was fired. I mean. And what's worse, what's worse is he, they, he was fired and they told him, you have to go back, clean out your office tonight. And you're not allowed back in the factory tomorrow. You can't wow. go back into the building. Merry Christmas. M- Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Yeah, you know, Jerry tells the story. He thought, you know, he was all he was looking forward to the 1989 PGA show. He was going to ride in on his white stallion, being the guy in charge. And they brought the, you know, they brought the edge out and the most successful year in Hogan history. And instead, he's out. I mean, he it's was so kind of the mastermind behind turning everything around, from bringing Ben Hogan back in to the marketing campaign, to the successful turnaround, to negotiating or I guess navigating the Japanese uh, purchase of the company. And the greatest profits they've seen, most clubs mm-hmm. they've ever sold, and you're out. Right. Well, you can understand. I mean, part of it is understandable. You're you just spent fifty three million dollars to buy this company. You eventually want your own guy to run it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that part's understandable. Yep. But the but the part that isn't understandable is you didn't get the, you, you didn't give the existing guy even a look. You know, wait till the wait till the end of the year. You did a great job. You put us in great shape. Not even a thank you. You're out. Yeah. That's crazy. So who did they hire to take over? David Huber, a gentleman named David David Huber, who was president or director of the National Golf Foundation at the time. And it's interesting. David tells it, it you know, he, he was a marketing guy. And he said, with the way things were at Hogan at that time, they, they wanted a new president. They should have hired a manufacturing guy because they were still having problems making making the edge. The, the irony was, Austria was a manufacturing guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he was, right. He was VP of manufacturing before they made him president. So it was just, it was a, an, an interesting mix um, going from Austria to Huber. And if you can believe it, the next five years are about to get even weirder for Hogan. So, but the good news is, I mean, I suppose for Hogan is the initial impact, sales are still strong. Oh yeah, they, they they were about to enter their best years for sales. 
93 were probably the best – were not probably, definitely the best years for Hogan in terms of sales. So, like, what can go wrong, you know? Well, what What, well, uh, what happens? I mean, like, because this part of the story, you mentioned the other part of the story. I think this part of the story is really insane. Yeah. So go into that because oh Cosmo World doubles down on golf in America. Go. Well, first up, Hubert describes in his biography called In the Rough. Uh, great. An, another excellent read. Both of these you can get on Amazon um, or Apple Books or wherever you buy stuff. Uh, Jerry's book, the, the Hogan Edge, and then David Hubert's book, In the Rough. Both fascinating reads. Uh, but in, in his book, Hubert def- describes trying to navigate the cultural differences between how the Japanese run their business and how they run it in the U.S. And he says one thing about he learned about the Japanese culture is they in business, they don't like to say no. They'll, they'll say yes and hope you forget. <laughs> or, <laughs> right. They'll say yes, make you happy, and do whatever they wanted to do anyway. So he had there was there was he got caught up in a lot in a lot of that. Um, within a year, uh, within about a year and a half, Cosmo World kind of surprises Huber by buying Pebble Beach. <laughs> wow. They bought uh, they bought. The, the entire Pebble Beach complex, so the Pebble Beach Golf Course, the Lodge, uh, Spyglass Hill, Del Monte, uh, the, the Inn at Spanish Bay and the Lynx at Spanish Bay. They buy it all, you know, lock, lock, lock stock and, and barrel. They buy the whole thing for $853 million from uh, Denver oil, from oil guy uh, Marvin Davis, uh, who, had, who had bought it previously. Um, so they spend a lot of money doing that. They also, at that same time, entered into a very expensive deal to be the the the, the sponsor of the Ben Hogan Tour. Yeah, I didn't and know. I'll be honest. Obviously, I think most golfers have heard of the Ben Hogan Tour, but I did not know that it was Cosmo World that was basically kicking that off. I who knew? Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, they they entered into that deal uh, to start the Ben Hogan Tour, and the, uh, the Ben Hogan Tour eventually became the Nike Tour. Then the nationwide tour, then the, the web.com tour. Now it's known as the Corn Ferry Tour. So it's it, it had its its beginnings way back then. Um, you know, Huber says you know AMF never spent a lot of money when it owned Hogan. Never spent a lot of money investing in the company. Minstar was prepping it for sale, so their financial arrangement was different. Um, Cosmo World was putting money into it, but the thing about Cosmo World in Japan, there's really no they don't differentiate between. Um, marketing expense and advertising expense. You know, marketing meaning branding. They figured the money they spent on the Ben Hogan tour and the money they spent on the tour staff was no different than money spent on advertising. Yeah, they didn't see a, a direct correlation of, you know, having Ben Hogan on TV isn't needed because we have the Ben Hogan tour and that sells, you know, our company. Yeah. So that for their from their perspective, they said we're spending almost seven million dollars a year on marketing. What do you need more for? What do you, you know, what do you need to run advertisements for? Especially since you can't keep up with the orders for the edge that you right. have already. Yeah. Yeah. And so, record profits, right? Right. Why absolutely you be spending more? But 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 they didn't differentiate the difference between branding and advertising. Branding builds the culture of the company and it builds the, uh, you know, how the company is viewed by customers. Advertising sells products 
and it leverages your branding to be successful. They didn't. They never differentiated between the two. Um, you know, they kept they get promised that they would be sent, they would they would get more money, but never never came through with it. Additionally, at this time, Hogan takes out a twenty million dollar loan to fund a lot of its operations. But immediately, Cosmo World says we need some of that. Oh dear. Yeah, immediately of that twenty million that Ho- the Hogan Company itself took out, six million goes directly to Cosmo World, never to be seen again. So they take never. twenty million out for say operations, right. and six million disappears. Six million goes right to Cosmo World immediately, and then later on, another three million dollar loan came th- was that was requested, and Huber said had no choice. Yeah, he gave him the three million dollars. He was promised that they'd pay it back. Again, never happened. Wow. Actually, technically, it did. They got three million dollars back because the bank said, "Hey, you got to get this money back, or we can't. You're not going to have access to the rest of this money." So Cosmo World gave them the three million dollars back, but they took it back again after the first of the year, uh, in in the early '90s. So all this money, they they couldn't use it because they had to give it back to, to corporate. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. And so. And then there's there's things with Cosmo World with the Ben Hogan tour going on in 1989 too, right? Well, they st- what they do is they actually st- they open up Ben Hogan Japan, uh, the Hogan company, a separate company set up in Japan in 1989, um, and they wanted product immediately. So the Japanese said, "Okay, you got to send some edge, uh, you know, a, a substantial amount of edge product that you've been making and you have orders for in the U.S." Yeah, so you can't you can't Japan. fulfill your orders in the United States. We're going to open Ben Hogan Japan, and we need some of that equipment that you can't already finalize and deliver sent over to Japan. Right. They had a six month back order anyway. Wow. This just pushed it out even further. Oh, wow. They had sent they had to send out letters to their customers and say, you know, hey, we appreciate your loyalty and your patience. We're working as hard as we can to get you your product. Um, it didn't help, but still these orders were still coming in. They were still behind in terms of their ability to create to to to, to, to manufacture and ship product to to fulfill the orders that they had. And so Ben Hogan Japan, Hogan Japan orders a ton of equipment, right? Right. Right. Like, in your words, over orders what they need. Right. And there's an issue. There's an issue. They, they, they kept sending stuff back under warranty claims, saying, claiming that there was a rattle in the, in the, in the product. And, you know, the, the, the R&D team or the quality team at Hogan, you know, looked and said, this is a rattle. What are you talking about, a rattle? So actually Huber and, and a couple of staff went to Japan to see what they were doing. And he said they were taking these clubs and just banging them on the ground like that. You know, just to see what would happen. And ultimately, there was never any rattle. They could never identify a rattle. What was happening is they had overordered. They couldn't sell. And this was their way of saving face. No way. Rather than saying, hey, we overordered. We got to send these things back. It it, it was that cultural difference that they just never really could reconcile. So it just Which is even more damaging because if you ship it back, at least the orders could be filled in the United States. Yeah. You've just destroyed all this inventory. Wow. Unreal. Yeah. It just made it more difficult and a lot more costly. But it's, again, it's not all bad news in 1989. Like, you get all of that, but, you know, things are still going well at the Ben Hogan Golf Company, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're the number one Ford manufacturer in the world. They're number three overall. You know, they've got orders they can't fill. Their, their, their orders are outpacing their ability. So that's... Not a bad problem to have as long as there's an end in sight. Uh, but that's kind of where they were. 
and Huber's doing an amazing job kind of like the like the old story of the boy sticking his fingers in the dike trying to keep thing keep the flood from happening he's trying to manage his way through a lot of this and then the pebble beach curveball comes at him yeah it's i mean the whole thing is just crazy so let's let's dive into pebble beach how does it fit into the company's issues and how is Pebble Beach involved with the Ben Hogan Golf Company? Like, I, I didn't see any of this coming <laughs> when, we, when we started on this journey. Huber certainly didn't either, uh, oh. the, way he, the way he describes it. Um, in, September, uh, in September of 1990, they buy, the, they buy uh, Cosmo World buys um, Pebble, the Pebble property from Marvin Davis. Uh, Huber learns about this in a letter where he just opens his mail one day and, and his presence is required at a meeting at Century City in, in Los Angeles uh, to finalize the sale of Pebble Beach to the Ben Hogan company and that he would be president of the new company called Ben Hogan Property. Okay, and, okay, I knew, so it's yeah, it's yeah. under Ben Hogan owns yeah. Pebble Beach. Yeah, ben, the ben, it's, called, it's a new company called Ben Hogan Properties. Wow. Uh, yeah. All right. And Huber it's, knows Huber knows nothing about this. He's until in the he dark. Opens his mail that day. Yeah, he opens his mail and says, "Not only is your parent company buying Pebble Beach, you're going to be president." <laughs> On so he's going to be company. He's going to be the president of essentially Pebble Beach, the Ben Hogan property, but he's still president of Ben Hogan Golf Company. Correct. R- right. And here's the thing: the the, the management of Pebble Beach never really is fully resolved because there were three people. Huber and two other people who each of them thought they were in charge oh, and there was never any, so, so it was a, it was a dysfunctional relationship from the get go, um, that nobody really knew who was in charge or who had the authority. And these three people were fighting with each other. And I, one of the cool or interesting twists to this is, uh, you went into what the Japanese wanted to do regarding memberships to Pebble beach. Right. That's right. really interesting to me. Because I did not know that. So again, we have this 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 nat- nationwide suspicion slash fear of Japanese industry taking over the U.S. Now the Japanese have purchased this iconic American golf destination for for like eight. What was it? Eight hundred million dollars. Eight hundred and thirty million dollars. Yeah. So they have an idea to get all this money back. They quick. get an idea. They they <laughs> want to recoup their investments. So yeah. their plan is to sell memberships in Japan. In Japan, they had something at the time called the Japanese Golf Membership Exchange. It was where you bought and sold memberships. So they wanted. It wasn't a plan to make it private, but it but it sure did look that way. Yeah. They were well, I'm sell- you'd you'd have priority. It would be like a public private membership, right? It, Exactly, but you had to be from Japan to buy the membership. Wow. They were they wanted to sell somewhere between fifteen hundred and two thousand memberships at about almost a half million dollars each. And if they did that, they could erase the debt for the purchase price. And then it would still be the public course that everybody knew and loved, but every so often, you know, a a, they, a jumbo jet filled with Japanese golfers would come over from Tokyo. Uh, and basically take over the course or play the, you know, to be able to play the course I mean, five, six times a year. 2,000 memberships, I, I would assume 2,000 memberships would mean that public play would be diminished quite a bit. 
I mean, if they, yeah, but they were they were in Japan, so it was no, it was no, like, I get it, but like, to, I mean, junkie. if I belong to Cypress Point, I'm going to be there quite a bit, and if there's yes. two thousand Connors, we're going to play be there quite a bit, uh, right. quite a bit. Right. So, uh, how did this go over in the United States and Monterey? I mean, like about as well as you would think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, we have our resort course that is open for all. You know, you need money and a tea time and maybe a hotel, and that's all you need. And then here's this idea for memberships. Go into that. Holy cow. I mean, it's just, what could go wrong? Cosmo World kept insisting, oh, no, no, it's still going to be, you're still going to be able to play it. It's just that we have this going on over here, the side deal going on over here. And people on the Monterey, you know, the Monterey Peninsula were just, no, this is wrong. They were, Again, there were there's still a lot of still, this is the early '90s. Still, a lot of people who fought in World War II that still that had long memories. There were right? golfers. I mean, there was a big surge in golf after World War II. Yeah, right, right. And they, you know, Cosmo World was putting a lot of money into the property too. They were getting ready for the '92 U.S. Open. They had hired Jack Nicholas to do some course upgrades. They built a new wastewater a uh, water treatment plant for the entire peninsula. They were putting some money into so good this. things. There were good yeah. things involved. Right. But ultimately, Cosmo World couldn't pay for all of this without the membership deal. But the membership deal needed to be approved by the California Coastal Commission because it was viewed as a change of use of Pebble Beach. Pebble Beach was specifically designed to be a public course. And the concern was that this membership was a change of use and it would restrict the public's access to the beach. And that was a big deal. So the Coastal Commission, um, you know, they said preferential tea times would 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 violate the the all of the all of the existing agreements. So they needed they needed that approval. And at this same time, I mean, this is or, this is where it gets even crazier. Like if that's it, not enough, that's not enough. The uh, shit hits it, the fan. It big time. Big time. <laughs> So the, 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 the U.S. Department of Justice, it's leaked that the U.S. Department of Justice is now investigating whether the Yakuza, Japanese organized crime, the Japanese mafia, is actually involved in Pebble Beach and whether Minaro Isatuni, Isatani is involved with the, with the Yakuza. So it's just becoming big news. NBC sends Tom Brokaw to Tokyo to find out about this. They, they interview uh, Isatani and they ask him if he had ever had any dealings with the Yakuza. And he answers honestly, yes, I have. Every businessman in Japan and as in his quote, every businessman in Japan, especially those who develop golf courses, must deal with the Yakuza at some point. And he pointed out that was the headline. The subline headline, which didn't get nearly as much press, is it's no more than any businessman in the U.S. has to deal with the mafia. And he talked about, you know, the Teamsters and, and all that. And he, that. But he gave away the tagline. Right. <laughs> the tagline is that sticks. Yeah. So. Add another element to this thing. So the Coastal Commission ultimately denies the, the change of use permit. We've got the whole Yakuza thing going on that's 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 causing nothing but grief. The final nail is the Japanese economy tanks. It takes Tidal a serious wave. downturn to the point where the, the golf membership exchange actually has to close down. Huber at this point's had enough. The, the, the dysfunctional management relationship plus all this other stuff, he's pulling his hair out of his head. He resigns as president of the Ben Hogan Properties Company to go back and focus on Ben Hogan golf equipment in Fort Worth. Yeah, something he's been pulled into without 
you know, want right. or need. Right. Now, he, he, he in his biographies, his autobiography says, you know, it wasn't all horrible because my office was Pebble Beach and he yeah. would go out. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So it wasn't awful, awful, but it was frustrating. As he's heading out the door on, go, on, on the properties business, he offers Isatani a plan to save Pebble Beach because they can't, they're, they're, they're between a rock and a hard place here. They spent all so, this money. They got to get out. Right. So he suggests that they sell all the other properties except Pebble the golf course and Pebble the Lodge. So sell the inns at Span, you know, Spanish Bay, sell Spyglass Hill and Del Monte. That can raise up about $350 million. And then part two was they could sell not memberships, but limited, but shares or limited partnerships. It could sell 49% of the of Pebble to the public. So you and I could have bought a share in Pebble Beach and been part owners. Um, Isutani liked the idea. This is just before Christmas. Oh, God, <laughs> Isutani likes all. the idea. And he says, you know, I like it. Let's do this. I'm going to send after Christmas, I'm going to send you a letter giving you the authority to do this and set and, and, and you can set out the plans and make it and make it happen. So we go into the new year uh, of 1992 and Huber thinks, all right, cool. I'm going to get to be a part of the solution here to save Pebble, save this this deal and, you know, and, and move the ball forward. So he's thinking this is a pretty good thing. And he's anxiously awaiting the letter. Rightfully so. Yeah. And, and the letter, the letter <laughs> finally shows up and he opens it and he finds that it has nothing to do with Pebble Beach. It has to do it. it, it the letter is to inform him that the Ben Hogan company is going to be sold. Oh. And, he's, and he's, he's not to talk to anybody about it. Ugh. Right? Yeah. So again, the problem's not the Ben Hogan Golf Company, right? They over-leveraged acquiring the entire resort. They're mm-hmm. selling off most of the resort, trying to retain Pebble Beach. Hubler's like, the, the, he helps facilitate all of this. Mm-hmm. And for Christmas, he gets a letter that says, hey, by the way, we're selling the company. Yeah, it's, it's your basic, you know, Merry Christmas, here's a need of the groin. Oh, wow. Kind of a thing. And in... Interestingly, in as co- during Cosmo Cosmo World during its ownership of Pebble Beach lost three hundred fifty million dollars. Yeah, but the co- but the golf company did extremely well. It was golf, it was despite everything. Yes, despite you know basically giving nine million dollars of its of its loan to Cosmo World to corporate and not being able to use it to do its day-to-day work. Despite that, despite all of the, the corporate dysfunction, despite its president spending half of his time in Monterey, the company's still profitable. It's still selling. It's still doing well. And now it's being sold oh, again for the third time in six years. Third time in six years, which again, kind of mimics a lot of other you know rise and demise stories where you start what, yeah. getting sold and you keep getting sold. But this one, you're on the rise, man. I mean, like, you know, you're not, the headwinds seem to be behind you, at least with the golf manufacturing business. And yeah, but you're insane. upon it. You're upon in a corporate game. No, you're one, you of the che- you're one of the chess pieces and you're a pawn and pawns, pawns get sacrificed. And, and to be fair, you're the smallest pawn of mm-hmm. all, right? Yeah. You're, you know, $50 million company. It's not like you're a $300 million component. Right. So right. And who buys the Ben Hogan Golf Company and how does the transition go? Well, remember that that guy that bought AMF Bowling from Irv the Liquidator, Bill Goodwin from Virginia? He buys, he comes back into the picture and he buys Ben Hogan for about $70 million. 
and that that deal's finalized in March. Uh, Goodwin is again one of these people that, it, on one hand, you look at him as a villain, but you, you, the more you learn about him, like 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 Erwin Jacobs, very different you know perspective on life. And in and in Virginia, he's actually regarded as a bit of a hero and a philanthropist and a supporter of higher education and the arts. His stewardship of Hogan was not ultimately didn't turn out to be his proudest moment. Um, his uh, Huber writes about his first week, first meeting with Goodwin. And I got to read you this word for word because this is kind of wild. And these are, these are Huber's recollections of the conversation. But he said, the first thing Goodwin said to him is I've seen your books and I already know more about this company than you do. I understand better than you what the AMF culture is and what needs to be done to fix it. Now he's, Likening this to the AMF culture because he bought AMF bowling, you know, about seven years prior, even though Hogan, that was three owners ago <laughs> for Hogan. Um, and then he said, I swore I'd never do this again. I wish I had never bought this company. Wait a second. This is right yeah. after he acquired it. This is, hi, Dave. Nice to meet you. <laughs> kind of, their first, their first get together. Oh my God. And immediately he's like, I shouldn't have bought the company. Right. Buyers and regret it, from the get-go. Right. And he gives he gives Huber a hit list. First thing, too much money spent on R&D. Oof. That's that's See, all but by the way, that's never a good sign for a golf club making company. You know, he's looking at his other businesses and he says, "Hey, what's the best-selling iron out there? It's the Ping. It's an investment cast product. Let's do that. Let's just copy that. Why are we spending all this money on R&D? Let's just do that." He said the sales force was too big. And he said salespeople are by nature lazy. So we had to cut that. We had to cut that in half, and you had to cut their commissions and cut their pay. He said they were terrible at marketing, and they didn't know how to make golf clubs. Um, so what he wanted to do immediately was get out of the Ben Hogan tour deal, which not a bad not a bad move. Yeah, that's not making you any money. Right, right. Um, Steve Goodwin told me when I, I had a chance to interview him, he said Goodwin wanted to be he wanted Hogan to be a cast company instead of a forge company, which was totally against fundamental his, difference. Fundamental difference. Fundamental difference. Um, and this is also at the time when, when head manufacturing starting to move to, to Asia anyway. Hogan still made its own forgings in North America. So there was a, there was that there was a pretty high cost per club there. So their manufacturing costs were, were fairly high. They outsourced everything else. The cast clubs that they were making, uh, bags, gloves, everything else, that was all outsourced. But they were making in their own forgings and doing their own assembly. Um, his next move was probably the worst and harshest is he wanted to take – he wanted to take the Ben out of the Ben Hogan company. Basically, let's pull back using Ben Hogan as our marketing icon. The the person that helped not only start the company, but then turn it around. Let's take right. the old man out of the picture. Let's take the old man out of the picture. Wow. And we, we go back to one of uh, something that Huber actually did with with um, with Hogan. Another round of of. TV ads where they use the yellow sweater as a backdrop, but they're interviewing Ben Hogan in the in the in the uh, in the foreground, and that's one that every one of those ads ends with "Nobody builds golf clubs the way we do," which was stolen by PXG, which in in their <laughs> of course yes right, but um, in that in in that those interviews he 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 gave the classic line. It says when you hit a you know explaining the difference between a cast iron and a forged iron so for the forged iron uh, you hit the ball well it's a feeling that goes you know from the head up the shaft into your hands and straight into your heart yeah which is famous just line iconic. famous, famous, line. famous yeah. line they want to get rid of all that left unsaid 
you know, Hogan was very old at this time too. And they were, they were, I think maybe rightfully thinking about, you know, we can't pin our marketing on a guy who may not be with us for much longer. So that's the harsher reality of it, but, but it was cold. It was pretty cold, pretty cold. And then, and then they come up with the, 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 they're trying to come up with a, a new product and a marketing campaign for a new product. And they come up, AMF's marketing company pitches them on the idea of the Panzer. All right. Now, hold on. <laughs> hold on a sweet second. I didn't I, – I can't imagine – I mean, literally, this could not happen nowadays. Let's just go there, right? So I know I'm looking back at time and, and questioning something, but they're going to go into cast clubs and they're going to name the brand – after a Nazi Germany tank. What the hell are they thinking? This is right after the whole, you know, economic Pearl Harbor Japanese thing. Yeah. World War II. Uh, let's hits, just, you know, uh, let's just, uh, you know, retool here and name it after the Nazis. That's, that's a strange pick. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, it, it, they wound up not doing it, thankfully. <laughs> but what, what they did was they wanted to name this thing the Panzer. <laughs> and I can't get over that. <laughs> oh no! It gets worse. The marketing company said we want to bring out the tank commander in every golfer. Now I don't know about you. No, I've been playing golf a long time. I don't think there's an inner tank commander in me. No, no. And you know what? Americans had tanks too, by the way. You know, I'm just oh, yes, saying. Yes. Just saying. Yeah. So you didn't have to go Panzer no, on. No. You know. Yeah. Um, but wow. the thing, they, the, the prototype, they had it. They storyboarded it so the club itself had a Panzer tank stamped into the cavity, and they 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 said they imagined this 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 advertisement where a tank would drive up onto the course, take aim on the green, fire the the gun, and blow up the green. Oh my God! So like a, I mean, basically, someone watched Caddyshack, yeah, and, and, right, and had this amazing like they just watched like. Uh, Oh, I can't, I'm trying to think of a war movie back then, like uh, MacArthur. Like they just watched the movie MacArthur, and then the next movie on was Caddyshack, and they're like, "How can we bring these two great ideas together?" Right. Battle that of the timing bulge might meets, work out. Yeah, That's Battle of the Bulge meets meets Caddyshack. Unreal. So the Panzer oh, doesn't no. happen, though, right? No, the Panzer doesn't happen. But I, uh, amazingly, a version of that ad do- was used. Lynx actually used that concept for an ad for the black, the original black cat iron a few years later, where uh, I think it was Fred Couples was out hitting golf shots. And all of a sudden, this tank comes bursting through the bushes, firing its gun and blowing up the green. It's just (laughs) I don't know. I'm at a loss for words. I don't know about you, but again, there's no inner tank commander in this golf. No, I I, I mean. (laughs) I've I've tanked many arounds. That's as close as I get to it. Yes, yes. So Goodwin comes in, has this horrific idea. Uh, let's kick out Ben in the Ben Hogan mm-hmm. Golf Company. Let's have a brand that's based on a Nazi tank. Another brilliant idea. What, yep. What's he do next? Well, they they slash the sales force. They go from forty seven salespeople to thirty one, and they cut their commissions. Give them larger territories. Cut the commissions. Yikes, hey, yeah. you work hard, you can make the same money. Good or luck. Or less, yeah. Or less, yeah. Um, and then October of ninety two. This was just six, I think six months after he bought the company. He calls a meeting with Huber and t- tells Huber that they're going to shut down Fort Worth and move the company to Richmond. 
So, yeah. So, like, the history, Ben Hogan. Ben, we were pushing Ben Hogan out. We're shutting down the factory. And a lot of people are losing jobs. Right. Including Hubert. Well, so, to his credit. It wasn't Christmas. Credit, it was, yeah, it wasn't Christmas. <laughs> it wasn't Christmas. Wow. Uh, so he, he tells Hubert that he's not going to have a job when he's done. Uh, 500, they closed the factory. 500 people were let go. And Hubert tells us a, a heart-wrenching story about... Uh, you know, Ben Hogan was in his office as people were leaving and factory workers who'd been with him since 1953 are coming to the office just to say thank you and goodbye. Uh, one guy said, you know, there aren't that many jobs like this in Fort Worth. Having this job allowed him to ha- have a life, to, to put money away. And he bought a he bought a pecan farm, um, but just heartbreaking. And he said, this is really what broke Ben Hogan. This is uh, he, he just it. His, he was never the same after this. It was just that heartbreaking. That's terrible. Yeah. Point where actually at, after the day that everybody left, um, Hogan and Huber went to went to Shady Oaks to, to have some drinks. And they Huber says, yeah, here I am on the worst day of my life, slowly getting hammered with Ben Hogan. And Hogan starts to talk about that he's been driving around and he has his eye on a piece of property and he'd like to start a another company and call it the Henny Bogan Golf Equipment No, company. he did not. I did yes. not know that. Oh, yeah. Henny so he's like, these guys, I'm done with them. We'll use my alternate ego to right. start a company. Right. And again, talk about just about the resiliency. Uh, Huber had to remind him, says, no, we signed a non-compete. We can't really do this. Oh. So yeah. Hogan's on the outside looking in now. The company's been, is gutted a good word? Pretty good word, yeah, and never really recovered. The, the 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 workforce in Virginia was very inexperienced. They never did get making these clubs correct. They actually ultimately had to outsource manufacturing assembly because the workforce there couldn't do it. This move was done to get rid of the union and to lower the cost of making clubs. Ironically, all it did was increase the cost of making clubs because of the of the issues that they were having. And so. It, it's backfiring. At some point, did did Goodwin fire Ben Hogan? Does Didn't he get necess- kicked from his company? I mean, they're taking it out of Fort Worth. We know Ben Hogan's not going to Virginia. Yeah, yeah. It basically eliminated. Whether you know, officially fired, handed him a termination notice, don't know. He he just was no longer included. And that's that. You know, made the last few years of of his life. You know, that that much more empty. You know. And ultimately, the, the thing he built, he is no longer part of. Right. And it's not even in his town anymore. It's yeah, it's tragic, Virginia. really. It's tragic. Very, very much so. Very much so. So Fort Worth ceases to be the capital of the Ben Hogan Golf Company. Right. Goodwin moves it to Virginia. You know, how's that work out for Goodwin? Badly. Yeah. Very badly. Uh, ben Hogan dies July 25th, 1997. Uh, David Huber, Valerie asked David Huber to be an honorary pallbearer. He was the only past president of, of Hogan who was, who was afforded that honor. At the funeral, well, Bill Goodwin is there. Uh, and Goodwin, uh, Huber describes him as the ultimate, ultimate in tone deaf, um, comes up to him and says rather loudly, guess how much money I've lost owning this company at the funeral. Gee whiz. Uh, at yeah. Ben, wait, Ben Hogan's funeral, he says this. Yes. Yeah. 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 To Huber. Yeah. Good Lord. And um, Hard to imagine this guy being the hero in any story, right? I know, I know, I know. <laughs> but he says, 
since 1992, and this is five years, he had lost over $100 million. Wow. And he's asking Hubert's advice on what to do with the company. Um, that he's you know, been fired from. That he's been fired from, right. And ironically, Huber went back to work for Cosmo World and actually did run Pebble Beach for a while after, after all of this. Um, but he, Goodwin wanted to sell. He wasn't sure he wanted to sell it or license it. Huber said, you're not going to make any money licensing the name. Keep that one in your back pocket for a while. Um, so Huber suggested selling it to Spalding. This is 1997, and this was when KKR was taking over Spalding. And he said, I don't know about that. I don't think Spalding has their act together. I don't see them in a position to do anything like this. And it was then they left it at that. Well, by the end of the year, Goodwin sells Hogan to Spalding. How much was that sale for? Do we know? Don't really know. I wasn't able to find any numbers okay. on that. But I mean, uh, he probably didn't do too well. I, yeah, he bought it for $70 million. He'd lost $100 million in those years, so yeah. I think he was just looking to get out. I mean, it's really point. just, I, you know, we'll end here before we, you know, we break for probably our third installment of this story. But it is, I mean, there's a wave of emotion that hits you throughout this whole story, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it definitely had its, you know, trials and tribulations in its early years. And it seems to be this entity for decades that can weather most storms, right? I mean, whether right. that is Ben Hogan behind the company or, you know, or, you know, an executive reinventing or maybe not even reinventing, maybe just like gathering the company around the ideals that made it successful, which was mm-hmm. Ben Hogan, right? How can we right. use Ben Hogan and the mythos of Ben Hogan and the, the stoic nature of Ben Hogan and, and the career of Ben Hogan to really build this brand around the man and then have somebody come in and just say, you know, that's not working. And which it, right. and it was, that's the crazy part. Like as crazy as the Cosmo world story goes, it's a successful company. Right. But from the time AMF bought it, it was a pawn in a much larger, much larger game of chess. It was a pawn to AMF. It was a pawn to Minstar. Minstar bought it for a purpose, which was to liquidate it, basically, sell it off and make some money. It was a pawn to Cosmo World to get to expand its golf empire. And you know, the money they borrowed they used to build golf courses in Hawaii for and for other projects. I mean, it was a pawn. Uh, when Goodwin bought it, it was part of his larger conglomerate, and it was a, you know, he regretted it immediately. It was a pawn to him. Spalding, it had a chance because Spalding was golf centric. Yes, yes. They bought this for a reason, and as we'll see, Spalding does actually a remarkably good job with this brand. I, I just, it's, it is just fascinating to me all the twists and turns. It's as good. And as sad as any of the stories we've done on McGregor and Spalding mm-hmm. uh, and Penfold, it's it, it's remarkable because it, it, I get it. Like if you're the Ben Hogan Golf Company, you know, you think, hey, if we attach ourselves to a billion dollar company, we're not going to have problems with R&D. You know, right. we'll be able to do, we'll be able to compete with anybody out on the market, whether that's, you know, McGregor or Spalding, we'll have a name for ourselves because we have this conglomerate behind us. But, you know, when you're the pawn in that, 
when there is no real attachment or connection to the game of golf, whether it's a bowling company, which happened Mm -hmm. twice in two of our stories here, the pawns get sacrificed. When you're a means to an end, it doesn't, it doesn't end well. Yeah. Gosh, just, it's so sad. It's such a, you know, you look back at, you know, I know you're a equipment aficionado and you look back at some of the beautiful irons and woods that were made by the Ben Hogan golf Mm -hmm. company. And just knowing that Ben Hogan's overseeing these irons and giving them the blessing and, you know, checking them out and that there's a level of perfection and for him to die, to pass away, having that stripped from him, like all these different acquisitions happen. And he was mm-hmm. still there, right? Like he may yep. have been a figurehead, but he was—he he was still a force to be reckoned with. When he walked on that factory floor, like you said, everyone stood a little higher. Everyone right. made sure that their work was going to be fine-tuned. And then, in the very end, at the the latter part of his life, to have that taken away—and not just yeah. the figurehead status, but like taken out of Fort Worth—and this idea that you are. I mean, there must have been a great sense of pride that you're giving back to the people of Fort Worth, having that taken away, that that cord pulled had to be. It was gutting. It had to have been gutting. gutting. It had yeah. to have been gutting. Uh, you know, Hogan was so involved in, even though know, he had no real authority, he was involved in everything. Uh, Hubert tells a story about uh, he was having coffee. He, he would have coffee with Hogan a couple, three times a week. And one day they're having coffee and Hogan gets up, goes to his closet in his office and pulls out a pair of slacks, Hogan slacks. And he hands it to me and goes, what's the meaning of this? These things are crap. Oh. Pair of pants, you know, everything. He said, everything. And, and, and Huber looks at it. He said, I waited for like, it was like a 20 second. I waited for like 20 seconds and it seemed like 10 minutes. And finally he just said, I'll take care of it. Yeah. Because that was <laughs> Every, Hogan. That right? was Hogan. That was Hogan. That much involved. And then again, just taken away. And... After he passes, you know, that's the next the next act in this in this story that we'll get to. It's uh I mean, what that's the thing is like what's coming up gets it's as crazy as anything we've talked about thus far. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it, it, the twists and turns in the Ben Hogan story and the revival of the brand and then the death of the brand. It's just it's a uniquely American story that I, yeah. I don't think a lot of people know about. Yep. And, and what's and, what's crazy is our story that we, where we end this entire tale essentially ends like last year. Yeah, we yeah, go from ancient history to you know immediate history. Right, right. And, well, let me before I let you go because I, I'm going to ask you now. I'm sure I'll ask you in another podcast continuing from this story. But does it ever come back? I mean, it's come back so many times. Like, does it come yeah. back? It's um, I don't think so. You think it's gone for good? Uh, yeah, because uh, Perry Ellis, as we will as we will learn, Perry Ellis is the owner of the brand, and they have a thriving uh, apparel line going. So for the equipment line to come back, either Perry Ellis would have to decide to get into the um, into the game of actually manufacturing golf equipment, which puts them in direct competition with some of their biggest companies, i.e. Callaway and others, Um, they'd either have to decide to do that or they'd have to license the name out again, which we, as we, as we'll see in the final chapter, doesn't work. Uh, Or 
they'd have to sell the brand outright. And that's, you know, that's giving up a fairly lucrative and profitable uh, uh, apparel line. So my guess is no. There have been efforts since it closed down last year. There were efforts to try to find new investors to bring it back that eventually they had, that, 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 that ended in failure. So there's um, no, I, I, if I had to guess right now, I'd say no. You know, I'll leave you on this, uh, folks, and we're, we'll come back with another installment here shortly. But I find it funny when we were talking about the, the advent of Ping and specifically the, the Ping I2, because uh, you think of golfers now, and I don't know, maybe maybe this doesn't speak for all golfers, surely. But it's funny that in the 1980s, people didn't want, you know, the blade. They wanted the cavity back. And now most right. golfers I know would love to play a blade, but they're stuck playing a cavity back. Yeah. They need right. the help. They, you know, we've been addicted to this forgiveness. And, right. but we truly, I think most golfers, if you were to ask them, are mesmerized by the look of a blade. And it's so right. funny that that was almost twisted on its head that I don't want the look of a blade because everyone had a blade back then. I want this cavity back of ping that had all this forgiveness. And it was some obviously is the forgiveness everybody wanted, but the look, it was like, this is the future. And right. now we look back with nostalgia and we say, Gosh, what's the most beautiful club that's ever been made? I swear that list is going to be eight out of ten things will be a blade. Right. right. <laughs> and, and here's the funny thing: the new, the the, the growing uh, category is players' distance irons. Many of them are hollow body. And yeah. If you look at them, they just look like a thick blade. Yes. But I mean, my look the clubs I play right here in the office here look like blades. They're not blades. They're a cavity back that's masked to look like a blade, basically. But mm -hmm. it's that clear line, that sheerness of a blade. I just, I, you know, when you told that part of the story, I didn't want to interrupt you because it was so good. But I just thought of that. I was like, I mean, how funny is it that we are mesmerized by the blade, whereas, you know, not even our forefathers, I guess, just, you know, in the 1980s, right. we were looking yeah, our at... Our younger selves. Our yeah. younger selves were looking at as... But that you can see all the technology here, you know, <laughs> it's amazing. Well, John, thank you so much for your time. It's uh, well, obviously, we have a lot more of the story to tell. Where where are we? Are we in the nineties? We are in the nineties. We're, we're about ready to kick off the Spalding Callaway years, which oh, again is fascinating. Be so and uh, Act Three is a uh, is a uh, is an interesting. It's an interesting culmination of this. Well, we story. know it's going to go well because we did a rise and demise of Spalding Golf already. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, so we, we, if you've listened to the show before, you got a pretty good idea where that might go. <laughs> Thank you so much, John. We'll talk to you soon. I can't wait. What an unbelievable story. Cosmo World's acquisition of the Ben Hogan Golf Equipment Company and then Pebble Beach. Their failed attempt to make Pebble Beach a private course for the Japanese elite and then the downfall of both their efforts at Pebble Beach and Ben Hogan. And finally, we end part two with the tragic death of Ben Hogan. We are two episodes into the history of the Ben Hogan Golf Company, and I really want to know your thoughts. Are you enjoying this tale of rise and demise? Let me know your thoughts and make sure to rate the show and leave a comment. Until next time, yours in golf history. This is Connor T. Lewis.